You're listening to Beyond the Studio, a podcast for artists. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller. We're both independent working artists ourselves. And here on the podcast, we have honest conversations with fellow visual artists about their careers and the real work that happens beyond the studio. You can find us online at our website, beyondthe.studio, or on social media at Beyond the Studio, where we share episode links, visuals, and so much more. If you're an artist and would like to be featured on our social media, or maybe even on the show, you can submit yourself to our listener spotlight and share what you're learning beyond the studio. Just follow the link in our show notes or go to beyondthe.studio slash contact. Beyond the Studio is a fiscally sponsored project of Independent Arts and Media, I Am, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can make contributions to the podcast by going over to our website, beyondthe.studio slash about, and click on the button that says donate here. All donations made through I Am are tax deductible. Your support is greatly appreciated and goes directly towards sustaining the work of the podcast. If you love the show and haven't rated, reviewed, or shared the podcast, what are you waiting for? Please take a moment to show us your support. If you've already done this, thank you. It means so much to us, and it's one of the best ways to help us keep going and growing. On today's episode of Beyond the Studio, we are so excited to be speaking with Adam Poliff Center, uh, Executive Director of the Maryland Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. And uh, for listeners that are not familiar with you, your work, and um, also with the Maryland Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, would you mind uh, introducing yourself, your work, and the Maryland Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts? Sure, sure. No, it's it's it. There's a lot going on here, and I feel like that's. Uh, I sit at the intersection of a lot of things. That's that's definitely my thing, I guess. So I'm executive director for this group called Maryland Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. And there are these kinds of volunteer lawyer organizations all over the country, none of which are actually related. There's no parent organization, but we are all uh, buddies, uh, both literally and and figuratively. Uh, And what our organizations do is we provide access to pro bono legal services and educational opportunities for artists and creatives of all types, right? So Just as there are pro bono legal services for a lot of types of marginalized communities, and usually they focus on different issues and whether it's a landlord-tenant issue or immigration, we sit in that space where artists and creatives need help (laughs) that need different professional services, uh, which are prohibitively expensive when you go out into the marketplace, because even though all artists would probably not like to admit it, um, they happen to be small businesses, right? baby capitalists. Um, And even though they might not be that way in spirit, uh, the superstructure that we're all chained to, generally for worse, uh, demands that we understand how our business entities work and our contracts operate and our intellectual property assets uh, are formatted and protected and exploited, right? So that's what our organization gets up to. And we're really here Um, to try and fill that gap between the services that all small businesses require um, and ones that are just, again, prohibitively expensive for our client folks to to use. Uh, What we like to say, though, that we're really a big tent organization, and even though we're called Maryland Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, and even though we may have started, we, we started almost 40 years ago at this point, a little bit more close to art with a capital A, we really 
look at ourselves as open to all creative small business folks. And so generally speaking, most small businesses have some creative aspect to them. And so we kind of look at ourselves almost at the intersection of community development law, economic development law, and, and, and poverty law issues. Um, so even though the things that we get up to are technically not any different, you know, whether it's a major label recording contract and, you know, a small, you know, record label, you know, down the street, our clientele are very, very different. And, uh, you know, they have other needs that both empathetically and otherwise that, that we try and handle. So that's Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, where I'm, I'm the executive director there. Um, and we have a great staff of folks who, who make sure that artists can get paired with attorneys and, and get the other resources that they require to do what they do. Otherwise, uh, I grew up here in Baltimore. I grew up in the county. My father's side of the family has actually been had landed in Baltimore City in the late 19th century. And uh, I moved back to the city about eight years ago. And I'm the only Hall of Center left here in Baltimore City. But I love this place very much. Um, and I'm here with my spouse and our son, who's six. And I'm practicing musician and performing artist. And I really got into this whole law thing because... About 15 plus years ago, my arts practice utilized a lot of digital samples, and that's where I got hip to copyright. And I was a community arts educator uh, up in New York City at the time, and I realized that on top of copyright, neither me nor any of my colleagues had any idea about any aspects of the law. And that, that became somewhat quickly terrifying. And when I was making a decision as to what type of graduate school experience I might want to take advantage of, it uh, became clear that being a community arts advocate was something I wanted to continue, and maybe this law thing would allow me to do that, while also becoming an expert on copyright law so I could figure out whether the art I was making was actually illegal or not. <laughs> and the jury's still somewhat out on that, and the Supreme Court's actually uh, about to decide an art law fair use case right now that also might change the game in that regard. So, so we will see. So, so that's a little snippet of, of who I am. Yeah, I also forgot to mention in the intro that you have this unique perspective being an artist yourself. But yeah, uh, so you got into it specifically around copyright issues, which is definitely a, a conversation that most artists face in their practice at some point and all the various ways that that can be, I guess, presented in the artist experience. What are... I guess what what were some of your findings regarding to your own uh, copyright experience? You went in with a specific question based on your work. How did it lead to your own <laughs> understanding on it? It's a great question. So you know, I I come from a I think a specific copyright perspective in that you know like most areas of the law, I just see copyright as another tool that capital can use to control the game <laughs> and to try and hoard assets and, you know, really, really just apply as much sort of false value to commodities that can then be exploited in, in the rigged marketplace, right? So that's that. But, but so when I really came at it first, again, as, as someone who, so I, I studied primarily jazz guitar, classical guitar, composition, and then got, you know, sort of into the avant scene as I continued to develop as an adolescent and that's that sort of led me to computers and sampling and, and stuff like that and you know the way that I had gotten to it even looking back you're like how, how much this was a self-serving perspective or not I, I felt 
you know, at the turn of the millennium, there was so much opportunity in terms of making new things with the new technologies we had available, you know, via sampling. And obviously there is a long, well, there's a history of digital sampling that had already been going on, it, like the literal digital sampling, right, for, for a large part of the 20th century. But then that, that quickly, as I was starting to get my ethical bearings around, well, like, okay, you know, where, how do we think about appropriation? How do we think about plagiarism? How do we think about these things that are not potentially more philosophical and, and ethical rather than legal? And so I was trying to sort of deal with all of those things at the same time. And, and I really got to this point at looking at the history of cultural production, which, you know, computers make things difficult and the internet makes things difficult because everything that you make is a copy. Every time you open a website, it creates a copy of a particular set of images, sounds, computer code, et cetera, right? And that aspect of copyright is not necessarily totally different than if someone were to, say, interpolate something, right? Interpolation in the copyright context is, you know, let's say that I'm making a piece of music and I could sample, you know, some particular you know, Rihanna beat where I put it into my digital audio workspace and I copy it and I paste it into my particular thing that I'm working on. And that's potentially copyright infringement, potentially fair use, depending on what else happens. But if I just said, well, there's, I want to sing, <laughs> my voice is great. And I just want to sing Rihanna, right? And I don't want to digitally sample their voice, then that interpolation could also be potentially copyright infringement. But that's the thing that we were sort of used to in terms of cultural uh, production, right? Is that when you'd you'd walk into you know a club in the early you know the early part of the 20th century, and Charlie Parker would you know see Igor Stravinsky in the crowd, and then just like start playing some Stravinsky riffs on his horn to impress him in his set, right? Like that type of interpolation, and and whether it's Western music or music from you know any other part of the globe, those types of citations and annotations. Are, are just a part of the game. And so I started to realize that our copyright law put far more control in the hands of the people who owned it, much of you know the time aren't the artists anyway. And I, I started to get very nervous in that, well, we have all these tools that are basically being offered to us, and now everyone who has a smartphone <laughs> basically has this thing that is obliging them psychologically and otherwise to copy, paste, remix, and do all these other things that you know really have dubious economic potential or literal potential in ways that don't just serve capital interests, right? So all that remixing and all that other stuff, you're not going to really be able to use it in any commercial context that benefits you, but your ability to slyly get away with some use on social media or some other things, um, which again, still might be copyright infringement, but the powers that be might be more okay with it because you're driving content, driving other type of behavior that that benefits those industries, it, it just created this imbalanced ecosystem, right? Or it furthered, you know, our already imbalanced ecosystem. So, you know, I'm one of those people who's pretty copy left, as they say, right? I think that, you know, our current copyright structure where every work that's created lasts for life of the author plus 70 years doesn't make any sense <laughs> to me. And a lot of that because I do think that we walk around in a media saturated landscape and to not be able to engage with that media in a, in a very literal and, and tangible and visceral way, I think actually does some pretty intense psychological damage and, and, and has some pretty intense effects. When copyright started in this country, it only lasted for 14 years. 
And in order to obtain copyright, you actually had to participate in registration. Um, now we there's no registration that's technically required for copyright to, to accrue to a work. And if you wanted another 14 years after that, you had to re-register. So works were, you know, they were obtaining some type of protection and some type of ability for artists to participate in commercial exploitation for a limited amount of time. And then those works would go back into the community to have people participate in a far more liberal commentary, critique, and usage rate, right? I'm one of those people who, you know, thinks about how, you know, if you read about, you know, countries like Brazil, where the only reason that they actually have, most people have access to educational materials uh, at any level is because they pirate the educational materials, right? And the copyright laws in so many places actually limit access to information in a way that, you know, takes us back to some fairly dark ages throughout lots of communities where restrictions around uh, access to information education uh, had some has some pretty intense deleterious effects so you know so a lot so the the, con the the conversation i find myself in a lot of times doesn't square with a lot of artists who even as you mentioned are like the copyright's the only thing i got that potentially can give me protection against large corporate interests that want to utilize my value right and you know that's when i turn the conversation to being like well if we organized around you know having socially subsidized healthcare and food and shelter and medicine uh, then we would we wouldn't worry worried so much about you know how much we can fight it out <laughs> neoliberally speaking and i you know again so i sit in the middle i'm definitely like a both and person here obviously i spend my days fighting on behalf of all of our community to make sure that they can operate in as, you know, as least an exploited way as, as possible. But then a lot of that is trying to also help artists understand that, you know, the minute you become the copyright boss, one, it's, you're, you're probably being a hypocrite because like, there's no such thing as the individual creator, right? Like anyone who says that they are the explicit owner of this particular work is probably not doing a very good job of footnoting and, and annotating their work uh, in, in a way that I would certainly find unethical. I'm definitely that person who just gets mad, you know, when, when any one artist wins an award and I'm like, there were probably hundreds of people involved in whatever this thing was, right? Um, I'm a liner notes kind of person <laughs> i don't know so i'm sorry i'm rambling which us lawyers and artists i think do so i think i'm i'm doubly guilty of of this thing um, <laughs> we're, we're happy no, for it's that really I mean, that's why we do a, a full <laughs> a, a lengthy podcast because we want to be able to dive into the nuance sure and sorry i interrupted you nicole yeah. but i just wanted to say it. rambling no. is all good yeah this you're the the guest here so oh. <laughs> I, well, I have to caveat a little. I feel like I'm, I'm deep in um, the consequences of my own experience today because I, you know, I had a court filing due today for this one case that we've been working, First Amendment case that we've been working on for the last several years um, for some local Baltimore artists that we actually just won, but there's some uh, post-judgment things that we're working on. So I had a court filing due today, but I played a show last night and a show on Friday night. So I'm tired. Tired. Uh. <laughs> oh, yeah, we hear that. Well, thanks for taking time to <laughs> to get into the deep philosophical questions around uh, copyright law and artist rights in general this afternoon on a Monday, no less. Again, it's it's hard to pull me away. I had one of my first experience, uh, legal professional experiences. I had my first job out of law school. I actually was working for 
uh, then Attorney General Kamala Harris doing consumer protection law. And my, my you know, uh, now Vice President Harris was my boss's boss, but my boss at the time, um, a congressperson now named Katie Porter, you know, she always used to tell me, because we were fighting against big banks who were improperly foreclosing on California homeowners, and I loved yelling at the general counsels of bank all day. That, that was a lot of fun for me. But Katie always used to say, Adam, you know, you're, you're spending too much time playing guitar and you're not spending enough time writing law review articles and doing the other stuff. And I think that's the reason that she's a congressperson now and, and I'm not. Um, and I'm still playing guitar. <laughs> but I would bring my guitar to the office because I'd be like, I got a gig after this. And we were actually, our office was based at the uh, University of California Irvine School of Law. And they had a, a really robust consumer protection clinic. And so the AG's office was embedded in, in that clinic. And so I did my work on behalf of the AG. And then we also used, used the clinic and the students there. But then I, I was just auditing MFA classes that the university had since I was at the university. Because the um, UC system has really, really awesome electronic music <laughs> programs. And, you know, and these MFA kids would be like, wait I so love it. what are what are you doing here and i was like no i'm like charles ives there was a there was a you know a famous mu musician from the early 20th century named charles ives a composer and you know when he was studying music they said he was going to starve off his dissonances so he had to become an accountant and he actually became a very famous accountant and then you know when he was by the time he was 80 they sort of realized like whoa he's he's you know done some pretty incredible work developing modernist american music and, uh, you know, a favorite story I always tell is, you know, they called him up when he was 80 to say he won the Pulitzer Prize for music. And then he just said, awards are for little children. He just hung up the phone. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. So I feel very Ivesian <laughs> all the time uh, trying to live the, the double life of this thing. But I also, for me, it feeds me. I, I don't know how Ives did it. Accounting. I mean, at least I'm an arts lawyer, right? So um, I get to do art stuff all the time. I don't think he was an arts accountant. Um, I think he was a boring accountant. Right. Yeah, or, we do know uh, some accountants that are yeah just for artists, and there's there is some crossover there potentially. But mm -hmm. that's so interesting. I mean, I feel like a lot of artists are kind of in they like straddle those lines, you know. Like even de Kooning was like a house painter for his sure. day job, totally. you know. I think yeah. those and some of the most interesting conversations we've had, I feel like, have been with people that are working at at a really high level at the intersection of these two like seemingly disparate things. Um, like I'm thinking of our conversation, Amanda, with Amy Whitaker, who has both an MFA and an MBA. So she comes from this dual like art and business background. And I think being able to um, to come from both perspectives is what makes, you know, that work so interesting. I agree. Well, I had this, you know, so when I went to law school, I didn't know anything about the law. <laughs> other than copyright like I knew all this stuff about like radical copyright but I didn't know anything else like I, I didn't even step foot in a law school I came back here to University of Maryland School of Law where I've actually been teaching now for the last eight years but you know I was just like I'm just here for copyright and like I don't even know what my job's gonna be and I, I don't think I you know and everybody here is gonna be an ambulance chasing you know garbage person and and it kind of was basically that you know I mean I, I met my wife there and and she but you know, she had some funny stories where like, you know, she saw me standing in like a corner at the beginning of law school. And I came super artist. I was like, I'm going to wear like, you know, I was wearing like my mother's turtlenecks from the 80s with my baby pictures on. And I had this big tote bag that had a monogram that said poop. And like, I, I you know, and I was just a total <laughs> like, 
Yeah, as like I'm. You got bringing like your guitars know. to classes. Pretty, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got to embrace that side of yourself and I was show up authentically. Totally. As they no, say. I, I think they thought I was nuts. You know, because I, I, you know, I would get in fights with these judges about the internet, and then you know, go outside and roll cigarettes and be very upset. You know, and then people were just like, "Whoa!" But so my 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 wife, she told me that at the beginning of law school, she was sitting at a table. And they saw me sitting like in a corner and there's like group of people who I hadn't even met sort of looked over and they were like, who's that loser over in the corner? And I was like, and she told me that later. I was like, yes, it did feel like middle school at the time. And, um, uh, and it, and it basically was so no, so it was, it was a total, total trip for sure. But I, once I got the hang of what was going on, the dual perspective I had is even legal writing, which is a really specific form of analytic writing. I just started to see as like a really weird type of poetry or a really weird Mm. type of like structural literary art. And then when I tried to communicate that to my colleagues, they were like, once again, don't know what you're talking about here. And I was like, no, this is like a (laughs) wild formal poem that once you like get the hang of it, you can, you can do some stuff with, but I don't know. I don't know. I love that, though, because I think it's it's a way for like there are so many of these topics that can seem really alienating or intimidating for artists. And so just like reframing the way that you're thinking about it, where like maybe this really dense like legalese is something that, you know, most artists would just like totally um, shy away from and just like thinking of it as this just like long formal type of poetry it could be a way just to break down some of those mental barriers that we may have in approaching some of these topics so i think there's well and therein lies like those the bizarre internal fallacies that we all live with where it's like if an artist can like understand what fred martin's saying then they can be a great you know they can understand being a lawyer right you know what i mean like (laughs) anyone who's had any type of theory in any way you know related to to art and even you know art school or not art school or whatever it's like artists love complicated concepts so whenever and if an artist ever tells me like oh well that's you know too complicated i can't understand i'm like are you saying that you're unintelligent because all the artists i know are very intelligent right so this is like all stuff that you can figure out and so the reframe is the huge part a lot of it for me is reframing around what the upside is right and so you know most people i mean again when so many artists you know, they come to me and they're like, oh, I hope I never even need to talk to you. It means something went wrong, right? If I have to call my lawyer and I'm like, or, you know, you have to call your lawyer because someone's trying to offer you a very valuable contract, right? That's worth a lot of money and you need help negotiating it, right? Or you have some very valuable intellectual property that you, you know, want to try and protect, right? So all of these good things and not only the good things in terms of, you know, financial remuneration, but the thing I talk about a lot is, these are these are power tools, right? These are community building tools. These are, you know, breaking down, you know, like trying trying to break down, you know, white supremacy tools and and the more that you can use contracts for ways to better make agreements, you know, based upon the wants, needs and expectations of the people in your community that you respect as opposed to just a vague, ambiguous, confusing document that's trying to control you and your labor and devalue it. To me, that's where the real cool stuff is, right? Where if you had artists being like, no, we have to get our contract stuff figured out, which means I have to get to know you better, which means I have to really 
interrogate you in a loving and respectful way about how we're going to be involved and how we're going to share this project and how we're going to share, you know, the, the wealth that we build and how we're going to bring and provide agency to the members of our community who are also going to participate and generally don't have agency, right? Kind of like we were saying at the top, like, I hate, I hate the, the copyright stuff where somebody's like, this is my project. And you're like, or... It can be everyone's project <laughs> who's worked on it, but that means you have to have a more complicated contract, which means you have to have more complicated conversations around the hegemonic structure of your group. And then that's where it's the funny part where then artists are like, ooh, well, that sounds complicated. I'm like, no, that is complicated. But I thought that's what we were all trying to do, right? I thought artists mm -hmm. were trying to be the people yeah. who were like, I want to be more equitable within my community and larger communities, and I want to try and you know have more diffuse power structures it doesn't just happen by itself right you still need to use the tools that we have and le legal tools are all about creating power structures so if we understand how they work we can reformat them to our to our needs and that that's really big i was giving a talk last week on governance structures for nonprofit organizations um and you know nonprofit organizations are just corporations right but they don't have any stock and they were created so that the robber barons would agree to pass income tax laws so that they never had to pay income tax. And so their structures are inherently inequitable and really hoard power and hoard assets. But we had some great conversations that there's still ways to manipulate nonprofit organizations and the governance structure they have where the board of directors, which nonprofits are legally required to have at least three board members, right, who are non-compensated volunteers, essentially, and the way that these organizations maneuver, it still ends up benefiting in some way, you know, social capital, political capital, or, or literal capital of the folks who run the thing, even if they're not the on-the-ground staff or volunteers. But there's actually ways to divest those board members of so much of their authority and their decision-making and all the other capacities that they have to control and still com comply with the legal requirements for a nonprofit organization, right? But, but that means you got to know how it works and you got to know what those requirements are. And, and, and that, again, take, takes the time. And so, you know, I, I still think we need more artists who are formally trained in the, in the legal arena and then even informally trained, right? We need even far more ambassadors. I mean, and, and that's what a lot of what we do in terms of the educational programming that we do at Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts is we really stress you know, you're becoming an ambassador by just even obtaining a cursory knowledge of, of what's going on um, with legal stuff that you can start to evangelize how helpful and beneficial this can be. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think it's so um, it's so helpful to hear you connect it really directly to these advocacy efforts and to this kind of like empowerment of the collective. And like this is how we can start to reshape structures, because I feel like there is just a very like deeply embedded characterization of artists. And I'm coming from like the fine art, like visual art world that um, like artists should just, you know, be kind of like insulated or be like working in their studios 
is and like not have to deal with all of these external like you know whether it's legal issues or like the business of being an artist and I mean that's a big part of what we wanted to just break down through conversations on beyond the studio was talking really transparently about how our artists actually just individually navigating but it's obviously led us to these larger collective issues and like how you know how we're all navigating within these structures and like societies that we live in and so I think just again like the reframing of these topics as being just another tool in our belts to be able to like operate in the world and have conversations and you know have a level of agency whether it's over your own individual career or to be able to reshape like you know an organization or just understanding how a nonprofit works so that you can recognize that there is an alternative and I just feel like that's such an important link that I haven't heard a lot of people make or talk about. And again, just like from your dual perspective of being both within, you know, the arts and then also um, within the law, I think you, you have a really unique point of view from coming from both those worlds. No. And, and again, we have a tough starting place, culturally speaking, right? Because that high watermark, especially in the, the visual art community is basically everybody wants to be a dilettante, right? They're like, I just want to work and I just want to be, you know, you're like literally you're, you know, the heritage that you're trying to like shoot for is being like the most privileged, crappy people <laughs> who could do whatever they want. They didn't have to think about anything, right? Or, you know, they're like, I just get to make art and I don't even need to know how to do my taxes. I don't need to know how to do anything. And I think there's a difference between having support so that you can still have a certain amount of time in your studio to make, right? There's a reason I think that people who, the more privilege you have, the more likely you are that you're going to spend a lot of time making art. But all the tools that we're discussing are things that also help make you a more whole person and a more whole community member and someone who really just has the ability to like provide sociological value add, right? And I think, you know, I, I definitely am one of those people who, I mean, I advise people on their arts business all the time and you know all of my favorite artists either you know were really bad at engaging with the marketplace or the marketplace had no interest in engaging with them and so I definitely come from that place too of I just want anything to happen that makes people have the time and space they need to make the work that they have but I also I I get kind of frustrated if there's ever sort of anyone who's trying to shoot towards like an arc of I want to shoot towards entitlement like I want to shoot to you know I wish that we lived in this place where I could just make art and not worry about this other stuff and then and my feeling is no it's both and like I want everybody to have the opportunity to to make work I know that again I would be in big trouble if I ever wasn't able to to make work but I also like I said I, I want to get people to that point of well, how are you advocating at a structural level that you can make more work and not just so you can get to this point of fierce individualism and fierce, again, dilettantism, really? So, uh, yeah, I, I sit in that place. And one of the things that I, my experience I, a lot is also helping to, I think a lot of people, again, just because we've been inculcated with this idea that, well, if you're not successful in a market perspective with your creative work, then you know, then whether how much work you should be making, how valuable your work is. And I don't believe there's any relationship to any of those questions whatsoever. Um, but a lot of people put a, put a lot of stock in that, especially all of our parents, right? But I think by having people who can help to um, disabuse um, our colleagues of the notion that like, a lot of people think they're doing something wrong 
they're like, well, my work's good. So if I just do something right, then I'll start being able to pay my rent and do all this other stuff. And, and I, I, again, I'm, I'm definitely like a dream crusher a lot of the time, but in, in a good way, right? Where people, you know, I'll ask them what, you know, what their business plan looks like related to their creative pursuits. And they're like, you know, and they look at me, you know, their eyes glaze over. And I'm like, no, this is just helping to tell you that your work, which is really important, and I'm so glad you're making it, might not be the way that you pay rent. Or it's the way that you pay 10% of your rent, right? Or 20% of your rent. And the better that we understand that, then the less psychological trauma you have to continue to apply to yourself saying, well, what am I just doing wrong? Because I'm supposed to, if I'm not at 100% of my 1040 speaking to creative livelihood income, you know, then I'm like, that's the goal I'm working towards as opposed to saying, no, how... It's just going to be good if I can know that I'm always going to need this other thing. So then I can mine myself for what other ways can I participate in society that also make me happy, right? Because it's, I mean, my real feeling is for so many people who end up making work as their main livelihood, they also are generally the folks who make the most amount of, the, of uninteresting work to me because they have to keep making work. And I just wish people were free to make the work that they found interesting as opposed to, I mean, nobody compromises on their work more than people who got to make work for their livelihood, which I I can't do. I was always, again, I was the Charles Ives for sure of like, no, I'm just going to make the weird stuff that I like. And if I ever tried to go the route, and again, I've, I've gotten grants for my work in the past and I've been working at, you know, this sort of semi-professional, professional level for a long time for a lot of what I do. But again, like, that's to me generally a fluke <laughs> to so much of it, you know, right times, right places, right understanding, right networks, right privilege. And so like, I just don't put any stock in any of that. And then a lot of people, they, they look at you, you're like, yeah, but you try and help artists manifest their commercial careers. And I'm like, yeah, but a lot of that is community building in my mind, right? And knowledge sharing and and disinformation scrubbing and, and stuff like that. I mean, the real truth I've seen, and I'm sure in the conversations that y'all have had, the people who are the most commercially successful who have been my clients in the past are far better business people than they are even artists. Or, or like it has to at least start out 50-50, but generally like the, the people who are good at business they're they're far more competent <laughs> as business people and their art can be whatever it is but it's just that's what really actually leads them and you know like any idea i haven't had much experience of like oh well the cream rises to the top you're like well some of it does but that some of that's correlation without causation because ton of cream i have seen in my life and many other people's lifetimes absolutely does not rise to the top like just not at all um which is you know that saddens me but you know that's my been my experience i think it yeah it definitely is two like different skill sets i feel that can sometimes overlap and are sometimes interconnected but i think yeah we all are recognize like the the best artists are not always necessarily the ones that are achieving the highest levels of commercial success or that are even able to support themselves full-time through their work and I think that there's just a different set of skills required for each of those things, for the art making and then for like, you know, everything that supports that. And like they may or may not. I just think it's something that artists have to like hone uh, in tandem. But I think what is really fascinating to me about your perspective is that 
it's almost uh, like the way that you were describing copyright law initially, it seems more like a matter of asking the right questions, like to, to kind of hear that you're, I think that, that there is such like an emphasis on like retention and like artist rights and retaining, retaining the rights to our work or like this kind of individualistic perspective around the work that we're making and even our careers and like how we're, we're like getting ahead, you know, it's like all of this language is evolving out of the kind of like society and the kind of structures that we live within. And so I do think what's really interesting about hearing you talk about this is like, well, maybe those are not the right questions that we should be asking. Like maybe it's more of a matter of like, well, what are the like conditions that we're working within um, as, as a collective? And like, how can we start to reshape those? Because if we were living in a different type of society, like maybe all of these issues around like artist rights and intellectual property would become a little less relevant because it wouldn't be like the the like chip or the token that we we like have to you know further our work and it's like yeah more so a product of the kind of society that we're living in so so like exhibit a of that right is you know the past two months every time i lecture somebody's like so what do you think about ai is going to destroy all of you know these job these creative jobs right and and again i just look at them like so <laughs> like every piece of technology that comes along ostensibly makes it more likely that you're a that like whatever value you saw in something right that like so were you mad when photoshop came out were you mad when canva came out and when you mad when this came out and that came out like you're mad ag about the fact that like we have no organized, what you're really mad about is you're mad there's no organized labor in this country, right? So that everyone fends for themselves when some new piece of technology comes out. And and again, taking jobs away from whom, right? Like the job that you're describing is like marketing, you know, directorships and, and art directors and all of these like horrible positions. So you can just hawk like the worst widgets by like the most insufferable VC funded companies, right? So like, I'm not, you know, like, that's what you're upset about, right? What you're upset about is that horrible system you've put yourself within and you're using your creative talents to try and, you know, create the best advertising for the worst companies ever is the only way you make money. <laughs> and so if we lived in a better place that you didn't have to worry as much about, ex you know, exchanging your time for the, the, the money bucks, then, then that's what we should be talking about. Because there's, always going to be this like next thing but the funny thing i think about too is that also has nothing to do with like art's never in trouble by like any new technology that's created like art is not in trouble people are going to make and they're going to innovate and some of it's going to be interesting and some of it's not going to be interesting and there's myriad tools that have been around forever that many of us still have not not actually fully like you know squeezed all of the life out of in terms of the interesting possibilities but the like four alarm fires that i just hear all the time are like well this thing's coming up so artists are just you know what are we what are we doing about spotify what are we doing about this and you're like you know th this is all meaningless to me in terms of the state of art and creativity and hopefully if there's any things that actually start inhibiting the creation of any art right i think one thing i've been thinking about is especially you know, the state of touring musicians right now is you, you basically can't tour and not lose money. Right. And 
you can't record music and and not really lose money and people are still going to make music right <laughs> um but we are going to start getting to a point where the number of people who are going to be able to participate in certain creative mediums in certain ways is just going to go away and then so the question i have for those people is like how are you organizing with your fellow create fellow creatives in that particular medium to say i need xyz abc resources either publicly or privately funded in order to ensure that we can do this and where there's food on the table at the same time right but but the it's funny the things that folks focus on um in terms of being the you know the culprits of of these things and so um yeah i don't you know I do understand the fear, though, that people have around technology developing so much faster than the pace of like the law can keep up with so that there is no like no way to regulate or no way to like determine even like whether or not this is a form of copyright infringement. And I I guess I like I understand the like those fears that artists or creatives maybe have around something like AI taking over their, or just like crowdsourcing, like something that they've spent years trying to like hone and just, you know, regurgitating it in a matter of a few seconds. And then sure, like other companies looking at that and being like, great, we'll just have an AI make it instead of like paying an illustrator a fair living wage in order to create that. And so I feel like those fears are grounded in like, of course, like in an ideal world or society, like we wouldn't have to deal with any of these things. But I'm just curious, like your take on like in the meantime, we all do have to contend with like living in these structures and like living in this. I mean, here in the States, like this very capitalist society. So to me, like, of course, like if you are not engaging at all with the market, you can kind of like focus on your your craft and like the art making. But there is like its own form of privilege in doing that because if you're saying like I'm going to totally disengage from this like commercial context that we're living in, then I'm recognizing that like my income or like the way I support myself is going to have to come from something else entirely. And so if you're going to continue like dedicating yourself to your craft, like well, just like realistically, then that's just happening on nights and weekends and it's like you're working two full-time jobs. So I think there are very real pressures like regardless and so like of, of course i think zooming out like we should be working to more collectively organize so that we can start to shift and like reshape some of these larger structures but i i guess i'm i'm like wondering i don't know if i totally agree with you I, on the like I, you know we just shouldn't even worry about ai because we're not asking the right questions there and it's fine that they're just like crowdsourcing from artists work in order to like even if part of the end goal is that, well, sure, those companies using AI should be hiring artists directly. So, I mean, again, we don't have a lot of good answers here, um, which is part of why it's like an inflammatory thing to talk about. But so like the example I give is, is, you know, back when you needed an individual artisan to, you know, knit your piece of clothing, right? And then automated technology came along. It's all about scale. Right. And so the problem we have with AI right now is it's a, you know, it's a scale like multiplier times to the nth degree in the most extreme way possible. Right. And every example that we have of something going to scale, if, if people are willing to basically have the, if we're willing to have the garbage stuff, right. Then like the guard, like that stuff's just going to keep happening. Right. In a, in an economy of consumption and accumulation. So I think one of the things that I get tired about is, 
or confused about is anyone who's who's sort of up in arms about AI right now are they the same people who are like well when you know the assembly line was first created what did those people do in order to deter the negative effects of whatever industry they were in right cuz it was the same problem folks were able to scale and change the way that that labor operated so that artisans were, were no longer necessary, right? Same jobs were taken away in, in the same fashion. It just smells a little bit more different. So I'm asking that question. And one of the things I think about a lot is, um, hold on, I think I have it down here. Let me grab this one book. Angela Davis wrote this article, Mandate for a People's Culture in the mid 80s. Are y'all familiar with this? Yes, haven't read it, but aware. Okay. I highly recommend, so part of, and so written in the mid 80s and, and I think similarly given where the economy was um, and what was going on, especially like from the cultural revolution in the late sixties until the mid eighties, a lot of people were like, Oh no, <laughs> we're in the depths of like Reaganomics and all is lost. And, and what are artists going to do about this? Right. And so my understanding of what Angela Davis was saying was basically like, well, a lot of people, when they think about radical organization and trying to change culture and society look to the late 60s, right? And are looking towards well, what were they trying to do in terms of trying to build a better place for artists. And Angela Davis says, well, I think that we shouldn't actually look to the late 60s. We really should look to the 30s, right? And if you look at the 30s is where arts actually, in Angela Davis's perspective, had the largest collective effect, sociologically speaking, at least here in the United States, and that was because arts and culture movements were also most in line with people's movements at that time, right? Um, and it's why we got things like the Work Progress Administration, right? And, and having things like the WPA um, and other arts and people's movements working together. And even though, you know, again, if we would have had a non-racist New Deal, that would have been really great. But the effects that were had based upon that organizing both within the cultural community and then the cultural community mixed with what you know people might have called strange bedfellows is where the efficacy of our work in terms of making things better goes up to the largest degree. I think especially with where we are after the pandemic, like I just feel organizing is like I'm banging the organizing drum as much as possible. And and even locally, you know, I'm really proud of all the arts and culture workers at all the institutions um, who have been working really hard and I mean the fight that folks have had to have at the Walters Art Museum um, and even the fight that was necessary at the Baltimore Museum of Art and Maryland Institute College of Art many of which even places like Micah are still participating in anti-union behavior so those fights and 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 the structure around labor organizing which was so difficult even for those places where there was somewhat of a structure in place to to implement it just think about every other cultural discipline which has no access to that kind of organizing anyway right i mean look at you know musicians unions have only generally applied to you know to symphony orchestras and and things like that and all other types of artists don't have the ability to to organize uh, on an advocacy level or on a literal labor level and so i don't know i i just feel like I, I feel very isolated from other arts and culture workers and, you know, I've been 
even put in good positions you know on current mayor of baltimore i was on the current mayor of baltimore's most recent transition team and trying to work with those groups of people which again for us to get much done has been extremely difficult we have a lot of artists who are trying to work together and we, we can't push our elected officials to do anything really related to the art still so i'm kind of just banging the drum of if anybody wants to have nice things organizing the only thing that I, I don't see another way right so because as we're saying, it's like it's either legislation or it's becoming a really savvy capitalist or it's organized. I don't know. And, and you can do all these things simultaneously and you got to have players in every zone. Right. Like I get that. I'm not against that. And like I said, I, I still review all the contracts and, you know, I write my for every artist. I write the meanest contract possible <laughs> if they're especially if they're going up against a non-artist. Right. If it's artists who are collectively working together, I'm always like, you have to work with people as people and you bring me in last to memorialize what you want to get up to but no for my artists who are like you know have some patron who you know wants to buy their work or they're participating with some mean record label i'll 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 be the meanest lawyer possible to try and get the artist the best situation they got going on so no i i get that but when i but i do think on the big questions around the ais and the other stuff this is not a new story we've been down this road before how are we looking backwards on how those people failed or succeeded against these types of you know, advancements in technology. And if people aren't willing or able to organize, then I'm sort of like, that's just going to happen then. <laughs> it's just, sorry, <laughs> let's, not, let's worry about something else. Yeah, I think we're definitely aligned on the organizing front. Um, I mean, we've been hearing this actually from more and more people um, that we've been speaking with lately on the podcast and just the importance of these like having a real collective effort in order to like lobby for more support for the arts overall. And, um, you know, we do have some nationwide organizations like Americans for the Arts, but there needs to be like efforts at every level, you know, like you're describing things that are happening um, with union efforts, not just at MICA, but, you know, at art schools all over the country. And I mean, for every organization, it seems like it does feel like the pandemic was a sort of tipping point towards some of those things. And maybe, you know, like those extreme conditions really created a much like greater sense of urgency around like fighting for just really basic needs and living wages in these cases. And we had just interviewed uh, Ruby Lerner, who was the founding executive director of Creative Capital. And, you know, there just she had posed like a similar call at the very end of that conversation. And, um, you know, even their nonprofit organization emerged as a kind of uh, response to the NEA stopping individual artist grants back in the 90s. And so um, I, I think we, yeah, definitely like see the, the value in these greater organizing efforts and that like some kind of like larger interconnected initiative is is maybe what's needed. And I guess as it relates to like the AI conversation, which, yeah, of course, this is like a hot, hot button topic. And I don't know that I necessarily have even like a strong stance on it, but I guess the way that I was kind of viewing it is, is as this kind of like something with like a profit motive that is basically like extracting from individual working artists or like illustrators and then you know, like pumping that out so that like other corporations or other businesses can kind of use that without needing to go directly to supporting artists. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm open to being like totally wrong on this if this is just like another example of the evolution of technology and, you know, artists will continue to adapt. But I guess like the, the perceived threat of it has more to do with 
kind of like cutting artists and creatives like off at the knees where like, you know, they, they are like working so hard to just um, like operate within the existing structures. And then that becomes like a real barrier to doing that where, you know, again, meanwhile, like there's this other conversation that you're describing around collective organizing efforts. And I feel like that's especially important at the national level. But I don't know if those things are completely connected or maybe they are. It's well, again, I think what happens a lot of the times is as we're saying, like you find yourself within a structure and you just adapt and you do the best you can. And then a piece of technology comes around that makes you makes you realize like, oh no, I should have never, like I should have been fighting against this thing the whole time. So like I, I was briefly in private practice when I was helping to build up volunteer lawyers for the arts here in Maryland. Because when I came on, moved back from California, volunteer lawyers for the arts here in Maryland, I was hired on as like a half-time executive director of this very small organization that had been around a while but was struggling financially programmatically and otherwise and I was like it's my mission to make this thing and now we have three full-time employees and are financially sound and programmatically going off the charts and it's really really good but for the first couple of years I was half time there and then half time at a small intellectual property law firm and you know the intellectual property law firm we did the same things same legal issues that I did at, at volunteer lawyers for the arts but again for you know small tech companies and restaurants and breweries and you know t-shirt manufacturers and you know horse racing courses like all these big businesses and we had one client that they would send us they they did t-shirt designs like crappy t-shirt designs at big box stores you know you walk into a big box store and it's just like all these just whatever little you know things you got your like saint patty's day t-shirts and your you know like just random stuff, so, you know, less offensive things than you'd find on the Ocean City Boardwalk, but like similarly banal, right? Um, and they would send us their images. And part of our job there was to basically see how close to either other people's draw, you know, other people's illustrations were these or how close to generic were these images, you know, like what, you know, how close to the line of like being as boring and as approachable and as almost like so many other things is it right because they were sort of like well we don't want to get sued but we also don't really want to do any work here right we just want to have these sort of innocuous images and that to me that's like so we had to do that but their and their ability to generate those images without ai tools to, was far more labor intensive right and they probably had to have more illustrators who were even just ripping off other illustrations right that they were basing all of their kind of look-alike images from same thing with music right it's like oh beach house said no to volkswagen we're just gonna have somebody who kind of sounds like beach house play a song right because you can't copyright a vibe so all those things have always been happening especially in the market context but then ai is just like whoop like boom we're gonna do this to the nth degree so that whatever weird sort of like capacity gap that there was like well artists we have to you know, keep you around enough because we don't have an AI and now we have it. So we don't need you. But then again, that begs the question, like, so why did we have all these artists and musicians and illustrators who were willing to do this stupid stuff anyway? Because like pre-AI, you still just had all these people who you were like, yeah, illustrator who's going to get replaced by AI is just making generally, right? Like in a commercial setting, what is their value add? Right. And, and that's what we talked about at the beginning, like their value add is so conflated, like they're like, well, I have this important aesthetic stuff that I'm making and I have this stuff that also has commercial value that I believe is based upon the aesthetic nature of my work. 
And then what AI shows you is no, the aesthetic nature of your work generally is is not as important as you think it is in a commercial context. And I know that like obviously AI is just built upon the learning of every other work that has ever been, right? And if there's copyright infringement there, then you can take them to court just like anybody else, right? Like you, you're not going to get scot free if you're an AI AI company and you say oh, well, all of our t-shirt designs are made by AI that were trained on these 50 million images. If your image that you use on the t-shirt is still too close to the other person, then that person can go to the copyright claims board, right? Which we have that new venue for uh, smaller copyright claims, or they can take them to federal court if they properly registered their copyright. So that's the like, where I'm again, trying to be like, this was a problem that if we were all had our heads on straight, like we would have gotten to beforehand, but this has just made it clear that the problem is now it's out of control, but we, yeah. well, to me, I guess, yeah. Yeah. I have another question for you. I'm, I'm interested um, to hear more about your perspective on this. Cause I feel like with, with like AI technologies, it's like, you know, digital artists or like illustrators are the like primary victims just because of basically of like the tools that we have in order to create and share work. So if they're creating their work digitally and then sharing it online, you know, basically for those only reasons. Oh, music, music's going to be the worst one because the only reason, I mean, Spotify, the reason are the streaming companies make no money. The only way that they're going to make money, which they've always known is that AI is going to make music for them. That's basically going to replace most of the music that people listen to. So that in the same way that, Lyft, Lyft, Lyft and Uber knew that the only way that they were going to make money is once they got rid of drivers in driverless cars, right? Which again, they're having more trouble doing, but like that was their business model, right? We're going to make this thing and we're going to get rid of the drivers and then we're going to become profitable. So we just have to wait until then. Spotify and iTunes are just waiting until they have enough AI that people feel good about so that they actually you know, don't have to pay any artist anything. And then that's how they're going to exist. But then to me, it's like, well, then just like if that's our problem, like if that's what we're so worried about, like, oh, my God, like the pennies that we're getting from doing this thing, we're not even going to get those pennies anymore. Then it's then again, the organizing is like, well, then we just don't need these things. Like from an arts and culture perspective, from a society perspective, I'm like, yeah, this is but that's it's no. It's, so it can do that. But it's like someone's responsible. Someone's responsible for buying all this garbage. That you know what I mean? Like someone's responsible for if a company decides to use AI as opposed to using artists, then we just shouldn't use those companies, right? Or again, we go the other route and we're like, we shouldn't depend on companies at all to to support our artists because they don't care about artists, never have, and they never will, right? Um, even if they pretended to for a small amount of time, whatever. So I I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how we got on this. I'm almost sorry we did. I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't know. No, I know. Honestly, I don't. I don't want you to feel as if we're like interrogating you. So if you want to move away from this topic, I'm totally fine. I just find if it's interesting to you, I'm happy to talk. No, I mean it just comes up a lot now. So, but I also I see. Don't want to go down the conversation. We can move ahead. Um, It's you are in charge. You get to dictate whatever (laughs) you find interesting. I'm happy to pontificate on. I say I do have maybe like a. Well, I could call it a hypothetical or use a example of like, how would one handle the situation legally regarding copyright, especially regarding the possibility of appropriating someone else's art or using it for reference. In my example, I'll use 
Uh, I used to make what I had called like fan art. Like I did these block prints and they're all hand carved, but they were very referential to uh, specific shows or movies. Um, Like I had one that was based off of Stranger Things. And then one day my Shopify website is flagged, taken down because Netflix was like, hey, anyone doing anything related to any of our shows now has to take it all down. And I've seen some similar situations with other artists where it's not such a big uh, institution, more of borrowing from like a past artist style. Like um, I saw this artist doing illustrations that were very referential to the like old Richard Scarry illustration books. And they got a cease and desist and couldn't couldn't do the work anymore, even though it was like, like clearly not a real Richard Scarry thing. But I think a lot of artists will face similar kind of problems where like, I'm just making this art as a fan, but now I can't sell it. Where is the legal line in those situations? Uh, or I, maybe it's case by case. Case by case. Unfortunately, that's mm-hmm. the thing, right? All the powers with the copyright owner. I mean any type of derivative work right there's there's copyright in characters there's copyright in specific images depends on what you're doing how you're doing it i mean generally if you're using somebody else's work without their permission nine times out of ten it's going to be just straight up copyright infringement even when it's not copyright infringement it's still going to be copyright infringement but then best case scenario you have some type of affirmative defense that you potentially are able to use right the thing that makes this confusing is because copyright infringement is completely within the like is controlled by the copyright holder it gets confusing where you're like well i was doing x and nobody seemed to care about it for a while right or or i've been on youtube 99 percent of youtube is infringing somebody's copyright right so like how does all this copyright infringement happen and then not happen and who's making these decisions and so much some of it's automated some of it's arbitrary and if you're not the copyright holder you're not in charge of any of it, right? Somebody can decide at any point in time to, you know, if you're using somebody else's copyrighted material, and especially if they've registered the copyright before you started infringing. No, we have no bright line rules about any of this stuff. Like my my big thing is if anybody is using, and, and again, like 99% of all fan art uh, is copyright infringement from a commercial and sociological perspective, any corporation that's going to actually take action on that some of companies have found out like, whoa, our folks get really mad when you sue them because they're making this stuff that they put on the internet, right? Um, and they've changed their behavior around that. And others are like, no, we don't care. But I, I tell all of my clients and all the people I lecture to, if you're using somebody else's material ba- you know, to, as a reference point or based on your art, you have to talk with an attorney about what you're doing because that attorney is really just going to tell you about risk. Most uh, most of what I talk about other than drafting people's contracts, right, is risk management stuff. Because, I mean, the funny thing is with most business, going back to even like, you know, the Ubers and the Lyfts, like their business plans were literally like, well, what we're doing might be illegal, but we're willing to take that risk. And if we are found out to be illegal, we'll challenge it in court and then we might win. And then if we win, then that'll be really good. <laughs> right. And like, so it's all about risk profile, but the, the sort of insulation from risk to be like, well, how do I do this? And just like, make sure nobody sues me. You're like, well, one, you're not in control whether somebody sues you or not, because they can sue you for a crappy case. Right. That's their prerogative. And two, it's trying to, you know, the laws we have around this, if you can even get all the way to some type of trial, which 
nobody ever does because it's costs so much money and it's so time consuming and they'll totally drown you in settlement to begin with you know i mean that we just don't have we just don't have those kind of answers but the thing you do has if you have a relationship with your volunteer lawyers for the arts you have a relationship with your attorney you can you can before you like set up your shopify and set up any revenue stream for yourself which would suck to have go away understanding the contours so that at least you'll know like well if i do more of this more risky less this less risky and and you know and then that's the best way to analyze it yeah and i will say regarding that situation for me i totally saw it coming i was like ah it was a matter of time okay i won't sell those online anymore that's fine i move on to another thing <laughs> i'm glad it turned out that way yeah. too i mean because then you know i mean how many folks don't realize that they take an image that's owned by Getty Images and they put it on their website and then they don't get like a slap on the wrist that says just take it down. They get a bill, right? They're like, you like, you know, use this without a license, pay us $2,000 or we file suit. And then they call me and they're like, well, I thought, can I just like, I'll just take it down. And like, they're not, you know, can they not charge me? It's like YouTube, you know, I get a, a see, you know, notice and takedown or something and it just happens. You're like, no, they can do that too. They can shoot. And then, and then you get to decide, like, do I want to... They know, they basically price those things so that if you pick up a phone with an attorney, it'll cost you just as much money if you just pay them $2,000 straight up. So they know that. And uh, yeah, you're over a barrel for sure. Yeah. So I guess ultimately a lot of it is based on your personal assessment of what you're willing to risk and what is worth it to you. And obviously depending on where you're like really making the bulk of your income, this can have a large or minor effect on you. I'm curious how, like for sort of an opposite case scenario where say I am the artist and I see, I mean, I guess it's sort of a two prong question. Like I see a corporation, big money using my work versus maybe I see another artist, another independent sure. broke as me totally. artist appropriating my work. I guess how would you advise an artist to handle potentially again case by case but it's 100 it's 100 <laughs> case by case because like you have to first figure out whether or not copyright infringement took place one of the mm -hmm. hard things that happens sometimes with big corporations is a part of copyright infringement is that the potential infringer needs to have had access to your work mm. before they've done what they've done right so a lot of times if, if i get a call from somebody and they're like oh my God, I just heard that new Rihanna song and it sounds just like this song that I put up on SoundCloud 10 years ago. And you're like, unfortunately, that song that had eight listens, Rihanna didn't have access to that. That was not something that happened. Sometimes you're like, no, I was in conversation with this particular brand agency and I said no to them. And then their company that they were hired to be a brand agency for made something that looked very similar to what I did. And then you, I mean, that happens all the time. And then the question is, okay, how substantially similar do we think these things are like and then that's the like crapshoot of there's no there's no real answer for a lot of those things and then you'll just you got to figure out how much time and money is it going to cost for me to fight this what are the chances of my potential success etc cetera, etc cetera, right uh, a lot of the times i mean the worst example of copyright infringement there was a famous case here in baltimore actually where like long story short when the Baltimore Ravens football team came to town, the security guard who worked for the company, who was like the holding company for the team, was making little doodles of logos for each name that they like said, hey, we're going to name 
you know, Team X or Team Y. And through a comedy of errors, it sort of became understood that the security guard made their little doodle for each new team name that they came up with. And so as a PR stunt, the head office was like, well, good job, security guard. You keep sending us your doodles for each logo. And then <laughs> and then somehow they accidentally ended up using like the security guard's logo <laughs> for the Baltimore Ravens. So like it like was sent up to the front office because the guy was like, well, when I had that funny you know spot on local TV, you know, the head CEO said, send it up. And then I sent it up and, and somehow they thought this doodle was the thing. And so, you know, first day of Ravens in existence, like on the helmet, on the jerseys, everywhere is security guard's logo. And he was like, that's my drawing. Right. And so, you know, he calls them up and is like, Hey, this is my drawing and I'm going to be cool about this whole thing. Like, just give me a couple free tickets and a helmet for my son. And like, we'll call it even. And, and of course the NFL are like the worst people in the universe. And they're like, that's not, no, like that's not your drawing or something, something. So then they litigated it for 10 years and basically and then one of the problems was obviously the security guard wasn't registering the copyright for their doodles before the infringement took place. That wasn't something they were thinking of. So registering your copyright before infringement takes place is one way that you get huge tools in litigation that you lose out on if you don't do it. But basically at the end of 10 years, the court found, look, even though they took your design and even though that design was on merchandise that sold for tens of millions of dollars, there wasn't actually causation between people purchasing the, the merchandise, right, which caused the sale and your design, right? Like it could have been a poop illustration on the design Be because, look, they wanted to buy NFL merchandise from an NFL team. And so trying to, and this is part of the calculus. I mean, how many people call me and they're like, I think infringement happened. And I'm like, did you register the copyright? And they say, no. And I say, uh, now, well, you're not going to have access to statutory damages. And statutory damages is the thing that says, don't care how much money, like how, what the effect, what the actual damages were in terms of cause and effect, the harm that was caused you. Statutory damages says, well, for every uh, act of infringement, you get between seven hundred fifty dollars and $150,000, right? And that's a huge tool. But if you don't have that, you have to prove actual damages. So if you have to prove actual damages, actual damages is beyond ridiculous to prove because again, they're going to try and make art, especially if it's a big company. I've represented people in both sides. So similarly, like artists, when another smaller artist, somehow it seems like, I mean, I represented somebody where they're a smaller artist and then another smaller artist makes an NFT out of a derivative work of their work. And then it's being sold for four or $5,000, right? So it's not, it's still, everybody's small and the monies are, you know, small in a, in a large scale, but still meaningful to everybody involved, right? And, you know, we were able to negotiate a settlement there. I still think that, you know, a lot of times artists are like, well, I don't want to be, you know, like a troublemaker, or a jerk. And they let themselves just be like, whatever. I still think, well, that's an opportunity to talk about. I mean, I, I think it, you should always be able to talk to your community members about like, hey, this thing happened and I don't know how I feel. One of the things that we do at Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts is there's a group here in Baltimore called Restorative Response Baltimore. And they're basically like a community restorative justice conferencing organization right and and most of 95 percent of the time if there's conflict between two artists contract didn't go right something else happened we refer them to that group first and say this is a people problem right this is not a like what are my rights i'm going to take somebody to court i've also never met an artist who's really wanted to take another artist to court really 
And I, so the funny thing is because I'll draft contracts for people, and I'm like, you know that we drafted this contract, and the only way that this contract gets enforced is if like we take someone to court if it's breached. And they're like, oof, I don't want to do that. And I'm like, well, <laughs> it's literally how this works. I don't know. What to do. <laughs> it's like that's power of contracts is in enforcing them in court. But we still we still only generally advise to go work out the people problem stuff going on and see what you can do from then i mean also most of the time that people don't pay other people it's because they don't have any money like whatever money they promised you they just never had to begin with or they spent it or something so every case you just got to sit down and see what's what and then you go to therapy and you work on your anger and your resentment you work on all the other stuff that generally makes you or or whatever you figure it out because that's i mean again we are also a shoulder to cry on like we should have a social worker on staff we should have a therapist on staff for people obviously we don't which again we the nonprofit industrial complex does not treat us that well um but that's the funny thing right is like most people cause and they have been traumatized and they feel angered and they feel betrayed they generally don't have all the information from what's going on but they feel hurt and so we're the shoulder to cry on and a lot of it's like well here's we are one specific type of tool. We know a bunch of other tools you could potentially use. But if you really want this problem to get figured out, you, you need your accountant and you need us and you need your social worker and your therapist and all this other in your and restorative response Baltimore. And like, that's really the thing. And then again, people are like, oh, I just don't, I just want it to go away. I want the problem to go away. And you're like, we're problem fixers, but problems are complicated, you know? And so... I also want my problems to just go away. I know. <laughs> that would that be, be good? nice. I know. It's so hard. <laughs> yeah, it's like the relational is one aspect or like a huge aspect, I'm sure. It's like yeah. the legal is just one part of it, but it's really more about the the social like toll that it can take. And I'm sure we could cr- create endless examples, too, of like, you know, legal situations or instances of copyright infringement there's just so much gray area that we could get into lengthy debates around like where that line is exactly but i think i'm i'm also more interested to uh, zoom out and going back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier i'm i'm curious to hear how, how you think about the role between like uh, like consumer behavior versus like lack of regulations or like how much uh i don't know how much how much like faith are you putting in like the law as it stands today when it comes to like copyright law for example versus like are these things that we should also be advocating to change because i i guess i'm just thinking about like uh again back to the conversation about ai which we don't have to dwell on but even (laughs) other platforms like like spotify and the way that they you know don't really pay musicians um i guess i'm not sure that my takeaway is that like any art that can be copied should be or like has no business existing in the first place but i am really interested in um i guess like if you think lack of regulation is an issue when it comes to newer technologies um because you said you know like sure like we could all decide to boycott some of these platforms like spotify or instagram or even like ai if we're not happy with the way that they're representing but i feel like unfortunately most people just tend to there seems to be like a lack of awareness of even like where content comes from how it gets created like is this thing i'm listening to from an actual artist or from an ai there's just like so much gray area now so 
this is where I kind of feel like, you know, technology is just developing so much more rapidly. And so it's hard, if not impossible to know, like what the origin or the intention behind it, like, was this a corporation that created something just so that they could profit off of it versus like the independent working artist that's just trying to like make ends meet. So I guess, yeah, question like role of consumer behavior versus like changing legal regulations. And what are your thoughts around that? Well, a couple of things like one to me, the intent's irrelevant because it's the outcome's the same. Right. Um, so but so but a couple of things that I think about here. Number one, one thing that I would like to see, which I kind of been again, I I wish I had more hours in the day. But like one project I would love for someone out there to, to take on because I have not had the time to do it is I'm a music person. How little people understand what the profit and loss statement of a musician is looks like is is profound right because they're like those people just are playing sold out show night after night and that person just got reviewed on pitchfork and this is all like you know 10 million streams on spotify blah blah, blah. that person's got to be doing okay you know like at least okay right at least middle classy kind of person and if you looked at their yeah, profit these and are loss, the myths that <laughs> these are the myths no it's a total myth right oh, yeah and big old myths my husband's a musician yeah. and he has a day job no and one thousand percent even though his band is like been going for well over a decade doing and good do, doing good right and so on, i mean on a major label and i'm like i know you still need that job over there totally, to support totally. this household and your human existence so like one thing i would really love to see is kind no i mean again it's like a thing we know as artists but i think a lot of people don't know and so if we're talking about influencing consumer behavior which may or may not be possible i mean again the bad guys are great at influencing consumer behavior right they just make all these like things that like psychologically make us <laughs> use their stuff but so like you, you are familiar i assume with the working artists for the greater economy yes wage <laughs> you know we love them yeah wage right so the wage folks was like wage is awesome i'm super into wage right like some kind of tool that kind of had a similar like ux ui but for musicians and like musicians can everybody could just upload their PL statements right so they're like for last year Here's all the money I brought in, broken down in every revenue stream. Here's all of the expenses that I had, broken in everything, also including life expenses, whatever, whatever. So you see what my outcome is. And so when I release my new record, I, I want the platform to not only show that information, but it's like kind of that mixed with a GoFundMe. So <laughs> you can be like, you see all my expenses, you see all my revenue, you've seen all the things I've done, and I am like attributing them to everything. And I still need more money, right? I still need more subsidization. So if you want to pay for next, you know, help help pay in to any of my expenses that I have or help pay into my rent or my health insurance or whatever it is, you can't say you don't know now, right? So if you click on Spotify and then there's a link to my P&L, you click on my P&L and you're like, I've got 10 million streams. Here's exactly how much money I'm getting from that. It's clearly it's not enough. And now like, you know, you just didn't know. And now you know. So now in the same way, wage is like, you know, how you know, we know what's going on, at least at a certain structural level. So you're either paying that particular wage or not. So I think that that would be a really good thing and would and would also help people. And also it would help a lot of people who want to help support artists that they like, but are like, they don't know what to do, right? Because they're like, well, I'm sure that this artist is struggling, but am I, am I supposed to buy like 10 LPs from them or something? Like, what do I... How do I do this? And you're like, well, no, you can just set up the framework, shows their PL, and have them give money to any aspect that they 
like to do, but then everybody's just on the same information page. I mean, the big problem is most artists have never actually reconciled a P&L, so they don't even know what their own P&L <laughs> looks like, right? And so it would, gr- it would be a tool to, to help everybody get on the same page, the artists included, to be like, here's actually how my business is, is doing. And I should feel comfortable telling everybody, I'm one of those people who love to talk about money, right? Like, any artist we do too no <laughs> and i'm that person too because like any artist you have in the scene where you're like i don't think that person works what's going on there you know what i mean and they're but they're making a lot of art you're like people should know that they're independently wealthy because if not people are gonna think like i'm doing something wrong what's that person doing or what grants are they getting or what's happening right but like i want everybody to be transparent as possible about how they're making money and i just think that would help so much yeah, I think more transparency can definitely play a huge role in helping to shape like public understanding and public awareness of like the realities that go into either sustaining an individual artist practice or like how is this band actually supporting themselves and, and even at a much larger level. And so I think organizations like WAGE are doing a great job of trying to build in more transparency and just create some standards where there haven't existed any around like what should an organization pay an artist to come and do an artist talk based yeah, on their true. operating budget. And so I do really appreciate um, the like work that they are doing around that. Um, and I guess the only thing I would say about them is that they or the, the thing I would add is that those those platforms are also very opt in, though. So it does take like, uh, let's say, another nonprofit arts organization to say like, hey, we also care about these things and we want to set a higher standard. And so we're going to like say that we abide by wage standards and Maybe this is a bit of a cynical perspective, but I feel like when it comes to corporations, it's like anything they can do, they will. And so I guess I also come back to like what your idea of the role of right, like lack of regulation and regulation is, um, you know, if if we have things like wage and people opt into them, that's terrific. But, you know, in some of these other instances, well, what kind of regs are you what kind of regs are you thinking about? Like what regs do we not have? Because it's well, funny, I guess I'm just thinking because yeah, going back go to ahead. me, like. I well, I'm a pretty anti-copyright person. Like, I would be fine if we went back to like 14 years of copyright, because you still have copyright, and you still like most. If you look at it from an economic perspective, like most of the work that people make has a very limited economic value space. And sure, you get some like, you know, especially with the internet now, you get some IP that like 50 years later like comes back around and gets valuable. But that's like 0.01001 percent of all culture made, right? Because right now, like, I think our regs are actually, like, extremely, extremely um, strict. And I think that we need... Hmm. But it just depends on what you're saying. Because like you said, that's the problem is, like, whatever regs we have in any direction, like, the jerks are going to be jerks about it. So, like, what regs would you like to see that we don't have right now related to stuff? I don't know if I have anything really specific in mind. I was just curious what your insights would be, especially around the emergence of like such newer technologies like AI, where we don't necessarily know or like see the implications when it comes to the impact that that may have on artists and the way that like a corporation could just yield that to like for the sake of their own profits. And so, for example, I guess so for Amanda. Oh, I'm sorry oh. to interrupt. No, go ahead. You know, I'm I'm Jewish and, and collaborative overlapping is something that I, I participate in. But so like, for example, right, you could make a law that says if you want to utilize like all machine learning algos that, you know, put in like take stuff and have 100 million images that you learn on, like the law could require that 
like there's a database where if your image was a part of that learning, then you are going to you'd be required to be paid some type of statutory royalty associated with whatever happens with that AI. Right. Like so instead of an artist being like, well, my art's just being sucked up and like used or whatever, it's like, yeah, well, you could then be a, be a part of that. Right. In the same way that, you know, the Music Modernization Act made it so that there are like now statutory licenses available so that I mean streaming services literally legally don't even have to ask permission to put your work up on their sites anymore right it's just now we have like a statutory licensing scheme that gets you paid again you're like no money but we could again we we could have any laws we wanted that said if you utilize x y and z then you have to we're gonna we're gonna make it so that there is a significant enough tax that maybe you wouldn't do this it's not, maybe it's not going to make you enough money to even do, right? Because people are doing, like, again, it's America, right? So, like, free land, free labor, that's, like, our whole thing. So any way that we can create technology that, like, creates free labor, which is, again, what a lot of AI is doing, um, then that's what people are going to do. So, no, you could totally restrict those types of things. But, yeah, I mean, again, that's where I'm talking, like, people are going to be like, that's the leftiest thing I've ever heard in my life. You know what I mean? I don't know. <laughs> but I'm saying in my brain, I'm like free labor, free land. Those things literally are not real. It's, it's not a thing. It's, Unless you're rich and you're super rich, then it's always been a thing. Right. But it's, it's not free. It's stolen. Stolen. Yeah. No. Yeah. Stolen is the better way. Right, to put it. Yeah, totally. Sure. It's wild how much of the conversation comes back to language and the way that we interpret and examine these various structures. And like, it even reminds me of like talking to my sister who does a bunch of coding. And she's like, it's just about understanding the language, like learning how to use it in a way that communicates effectively what you're trying to do and like how to also ask the appropriate question to get the answer you're looking for. And I guess if we interpret law like language and see language as this like fallible thing that can change and ebb and flow with time i imagine that the legal system also is doing much of the same kind of changing adapting and it's uh, i guess up to us to figure out how to make it work for us well and every because everybody's trying to basically stranglehold normativity right because if you have a language that you have to say like well what what are the normative and objective linguistic and cultural understandings that we have around this particular text which could mean anything right, right. look at our constitution at right time. like it can mean anything um then no people are just fighting for that and again as artists we kind of love that like anything can mean anything you just and i was going to go back because that's one thing that i do feel like uh we were talking about earlier in terms of like sure ostensibly there's some like different skill sets around artisty stuff and businessy stuff and it takes all types but i still get mad at artists sometimes where i'm like Y'all are so creative, but you can be more creative with any part of your life. You know what I mean? You don't just have to be creative when you like step into your studio. You can be like anything. Like like why don't we just be like I'm creative, so I'm why can't I just be creative about all the things, right? And I I think that way in the law all the time. Like good lawyers, they're super creative. They have to come up with the wackiest arguments that are just like fiction. You know, like it's it takes real creativity. So oh, there was something else I was gonna say about. We're really we're going thick into it, y'all. This has like really been um, a combo. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. What I, was I appreciate say. it. I feel like you've given us a lot to chew on too, and it's been really interesting to hear about your 
point of view on these things. And I, I appreciate you being willing to just like dive into it with us. Um, Cause again, I, I hope you don't feel like you're being interrogated. We, I just, I'm really uh, getting a lot out of this conversation and I think it'll be really valuable for people to listen to also because we've been spending a lot of time just kind of like zooming out, I think. And um, I mean, to your credit, just like bringing up some of these larger like ethical or philosophical issues. And we're not just talking about the nitty gritty of the law or like things that artists can do to better equip themselves, but more like what are the greater conditions that we're working within and how do we want to shape that? Yeah. I think that's where we're, I mean, cause I also just think that's where we're at because otherwise like, no, the other stuff's just easy. Like you come make an appointment and you listen to what I tell you, you know what I mean? Like, like yeah. we'll t- you come to call us up, we'll set you up with the people at the state who help you with your business planning. We'll write your contracts. We'll register your business entity. We'll register your IP. Like we'll do all that stuff. Like, that can be done. The same way you go to the doctor, you get the medicine you need. Like, and sure, sometimes not as easy as you think, but like, the, there's a pathway to it. The bigger systemic stuff, we don't have a pathway to. to and, 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 and then again, a lot, but a lot of it, because people lack the context around it, it becomes sort of like revolution or nothing or, or I just platitudes about whatever. And, and my whole thing is like, I'm, I, don't, I never want to feel as though I'm headed towards any type of platitude because i can at least say like these are the laws that are currently you know being debated at the city state and federal level that are affecting us so we need to organize around that or a big like a big thing for me too is trying to divest all philanthropic funding i don't believe in foundations i think it's unethical to have foundations so like why artists don't organize around trying to divest hoarded blood money right like we have we have you have different buckets right that you can just be like well what are we going to fight about what's there the greatest efficacy around it's the same same conversation i have with people around their business like what's the what's how much risk do you have what's the chance of success what's your proof of concept what players do you have involved what resources do you have access to and so no i feel confident about it trying to trying to have these conversations the same thing about yeah money transparency generally people don't want to talk about that I'm and I'm happy to just be the person that's like, let's talk about that. Or, you know, like every, yeah, the museum stuff. I, I wish every museum needs to print every budget around every show that they produce. I want to see how many, how much, especially the non-wage, even if you're a wage certified group, right? Like I want to see how much money you paid every artist who's associated indirectly or directly with every show you've ever done. And if they're like, well, I probably not nearly as much as the insurance or storage of the art objects or whatever. Absolutely. No, I mean, it's going to be horrible. But and then and then the question you're like, well, a they're not going to want to give that to you anyway. And then you're like, well, OK, so why? why? <laughs> and then and then and then when they if you ever get it and then you're like, well, this doesn't make me happy. Then again, you can start. So that's that I'm only ever coming from practice. Like my abstract stuff is always trying to hone in on very specific asks. And I got a bunch of them. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really practical perspective because transparency leads to clarity and the more information that you have, the better understanding that you have around like how these structures work then allows you to create a plan of action, which is like what you're describing. It's like there are really concrete and tangible next steps around these things and it's not just like we're staying up in this lofty space, but just having a working knowledge around um, like all of these things is what, what enables or like empowers us to be able to you know, like figure out a plan forward for like these larger systemic things that we have no like real clear path forward to. Well, and and bringing it full circle, like, so the artists who, you know, sued the one AI machine learning algo for 
you know, using their works uh, as a part of the machine learning learning without their permission. Like, I'm all about that stuff. You know what I mean? Like, I'm all about you being like, well, we don't. I I think they're gonna I, I think they're gonna lose, but but I I would be like hell yeah I would represent you for that kind of thing, right? Because like we're just testing the boundaries. It's like what boundaries are you testing in that way? And I think again that's where I come from. And like, are you the artist who's like mad about AI happening, or are you down to be like, no, I'm lawyer. Let's talk about where we're like how we can fight that one particular lane, and then see what the other lanes are. Because like I mentioned, I I really think it would be awesome if like. AI is going to be here about trying to advocate around like, oh, well, now we need an actual like national registration database so that there can just be royalties of a reasonable amount pumped out based on any company who wants to do something like that. I think that would be that would be cool. But otherwise, yeah, it's it's you got to know how all this stuff works. And uh, that's how I, I feel like I'm working two two full time jobs, if not five full time jobs. So, yeah. Do either of you guys have kids? Do you guys have kids? No, we don't. So that is that is one full time job I do not have. <laughs> it saved my life, but I am I yeah. My son is my everything, but no, that's another full time job for sure. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I was gonna say it feels like, and maybe I'm viewing this in sort of this like lofty, grandiose way, but like every <laughs> like potential legal situation that an artist faces has the potential to impact every artist in the way that they move through the world, like as these different cases are decided upon, it it can really affect the way all of us get to work. And so if we, rather than maybe asking simply the question, like, what is, what is going to get me what I need right now, thinking at the real deep root of it, like, how is this going to impact the way art exists, the way artists exist, the way that we get to create and share our work and be compensated for it and I guess yeah keep digging to the deeper questions rather than the immediate here and now alone I mean like you were saying I mean it's I mean most artists we don't even I don't feel artists talk about at all right like you know like in in government right at the federal level we have the national endowment for the arts we don't even have an arts agency it's not even it's just an endowment right and it's pretty worthless anyway and and then like the best that we could come up with were some like private foundations <laughs> to come up which are like the most inequitable things possible to to then be like well we're gonna try and pick up the mantle and you're like yeah but not in an equitable way you're just you, now you just control it right and but and and i know that like what's, i forget what the it's arts and culture agency like we have that there's that one group that's not a government agency but they uh oh americans for the arts no 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 it's um hold on what are they called or, oh um you know we're talking about like arts and culture america office of arts and culture it's like you're like you know, it's, now I'm I get their, I get their emails, but yeah, like the fact that like that exists. Right. And it's a pretty like, I mean, I love theoretically all they're getting up to and a lot of good theory stuff is pretty woo kind of stuff. But like, like, why aren't we advocating for like a real arts and culture agency in the federal government? Right. Like we don't even have, I mean, in Baltimore, heck we've been with our BOPA situation. We've been, I've been advocating as hard as humanly possible to actually have like a real arts and culture agency that's actually in city hall, which we don't even have here in Baltimore. And again, those are like, we got all these projects that we could rally around that I think would, if you help build those types of things, even though they'd be built into an existing structure, that's got some issues. That's room for you to, you know, to, to put this, you know, to build it the way you want to see it. And so I feel really good about advocating 
for for those kinds of kinds of things. Yeah, I guess as we kind of wrap up the conversation here, is there anything else that you would want to share, like any initiatives that you're working on um, that you would want to kind of like push out there to artists? Um, obviously, there's Maryland Volunteer Lures for the Arts, which is really terrific organization and I feel like we've both independently used them in some capacity I don't know if we've even mentioned that but it's just uh back in living in Baltimore it just really really is wonderful the work that you're doing so yeah if you're an artist living in Maryland or like you said there's all these kind of versions of that around the country so make sure that you you do check that out or like look into your local chapter I guess um wherever you're listening from but yeah Adam anything else that you'd want to plug Oof, this is a good question. I mean, the funny thing is, is like, I feel like I'm in this place of trying to see exactly what the next initiatives are. I really felt like over the pandemic, I, I was, a you know, a part of some big initiatives, like try, you know, as a part of the transition team, trying to push City Hall to properly utilize American Rescue Plan funding, federal pandemic relief funding for the arts. And that was a really extreme, difficult process that We'll still, you know, technically out of the $641 million allotted to Baltimore, they still have only spent $500,000 on the arts in the past three years with that money. So that's like hope maybe changing, but but like try to just like pointing that out. So I like had to sunset my participation with that. I was on a steering committee for the Baltimore Museum of the Arts who was trying to create a convening around trying to create like a more like what would it look like if there was a more equitable cultural institutions and that like imploded in huge Mm. fashion because I started bringing up all the things around equity and ownership and transparency that we've been talking about. And that was not well Mm. received at all. And Mm. I had to sort of sunset away from that. Um, yeah, Mm. not, not, no. And that's, there's just not a lot of places to talk about that. Uh, I helped to divest a family foundation that my uncle ran and it helped to start re- relaunch a paper version of a newspaper here in Baltimore called the Baltimore beat. And that was a, Love ver- the Baltimore beat. Yeah. That was a very, again, a, a very difficult, uh, emotional scenario for two years, trying to similarly like put my values into practice and convince family members around that. And luckily that was one of the few projects that actually was successful and we were able to to basically divest a million dollars of a f- or you know we only basically had about a million dollars in it, and so those those were like my big things over the last couple of years and and now I'm you know I still think so in Baltimore can people should still pay attention to like BOPA still exists and what Baltimore City's doing around the arts is still very unclear and so people should be putting Mayor Scott's feet to the fire with that the uh, community economic development plan. Um, what they call the SEDS plan, which is uh, basically the city plan developed by the Baltimore Development Corporation that helps to set the priorities around uh, project economic development projects that the city participates in and, and what they're eligible for federal funding around, um, which did not a good job at all of including the arts and culture sector. There's some implementation around that that I'm trying to work on right now and potentially have an arts advocacy day around. Um, and uh, I think if you go to BaltimoreArtsDay.com, there's there's still a sign up where th- that would create a day where we could, or- in an organized fashion, go to City Hall and and really advocate for proper appropriations, proper programming. That's something folks should look out for. And 
yeah other otherwise we have a new governor here in maryland who has not like not really been in touch with the arts and culture sector at all and i don't think it's a priority for them at all so organizing around that is is really important all of the gains that were made in terms of social services and social programs over the course of the pandemic that are now being wound down which were just programs people needed before the pandemic people should be organizing around harm reduction uh i think arts and culture can be leading the way in, in the harm reduction conversation. And so I'm, I'm just here to work with others. I spent a lot of my earlier career trying to crusade solo, even if there wasn't other organized ways to do things. And I am physically and emotionally not able to do that anymore. So I'm still here, still plugging, but I'm also trying, I'd bide my time more around like what's, what's possible. So and otherwise, I don't know, come see Motor Oil. We're playing a show next month at Lamondo. That's going to be pretty sick. So that's exciting. But yeah, I guess that's it. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on to the show and for being willing to like dig into these conversations, especially some of the like hyper specific ones. <laughs> um, I think it's so helpful to just be able to have these conversations and record them and share them and revisit them. Um, Cause so many of these things are like, like we said before, so, so unique to each individual situation. If anyone can gleam anything from this, then we've done it. And thank you also for just continuing to bring the conversation back to kind of our, our collective bargaining power and how we can really take our, I don't know, our needs individually and and move towards acting as a as a collective and and seeing ways to improve conditions for all of us rather than just for little old me <laughs> yeah and and i think about that a lot too of like i mean art you know other than my son and my wife like art is the like next most <laughs> making stuff and, and experiencing things made by others is absolutely like why i have stuck around on this place right and so it's super important to me but even with that being the case i'm still like art's dumb it, or like it's dumb in that like why are we special like, all the issues we have are just issues that every human has and so i definitely i feel that and that's why even volunteer lawyers for the arts tries to be as big tent as possible because even being like well these special resources should only go to artists is sort of like no they're really special you know like small business free small business legal stuff you know is really important so like we should artists are better sharers than most people you know like or at least we talk that talk a lot and i i do generally feel that way like i want us to be better i want us to always lead the path in terms of just like trying to live more equitable lives so i think we can do that i think we can do that for sure amen thanks adam this has been <laughs> such a valuable conversation it's been so great to get to talk to you get to know you and your work a little better so well thank you i appreciate it both well. That's all for today's episode of Beyond the Studio. You can find episode notes, images, links, and references over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to submit to our listener spotlight and sign up for our email list to find out about upcoming guests, events, special announcements, podcast giveaways, and more. If you love listening to Beyond the Studio, please leave us a rating and review and share the show with your creative community. Thanks! And also, uh, we were introduced to you by previous friend and get, well, current friend, 
previous guest of the podcast, <laughs> Micah Ewood. We still love Micah. Ex-friend. <laughs> yeah. We still love Friends him. come and go. You know, it's hard to <laughs> hold on to them. So do what you can. Happy to say that you and Micah are still active friends. Yeah. Yeah. We're keeping Micah. We love him. 